Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Academic Life podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to the Reverend Rebecca Duke Barton about today's show, which is about the pivot when you decide to stay or go from school. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. To start, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? I am the pastor of Jessup First United Methodist Church in Georgia, and I have an undergraduate degree from Emory in Atlanta and a a Master of Divinity from Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and then I went back to Emory to work on a Ph.D. in Old Testament, and that is where I did not complete the process and uh, and left and wound up being a stay-at-home mom for several years. And I taught at a small United Methodist college in Cuthbert, Georgia, Andrew College, and then um, went into full-time ministry in the Methodist church. And so that is the stuff we're going to unpack on today's episode. And I'm so glad you're here to do that. I feel like we should start by fully disclosing that we know each other. And we have been friends for a very long time. Um, do you remember how we met? Um, not precisely. I don't either. It's just kind of like you've always been there. <laughs> you lived in the dorms of our seminary housing at, at Wesley. And so we had this whole sense of, oh, they're the American University graduate students. They're always kind of around. And then then we started incorporating you into the seminary life as well. Yes. And so I guess I should disclose that part. So I was a full-time PhD student at American University and right next door was the seminary and they had cheaper housing (laughs) (laughs) and they had a meal plan. And um, I thought their housing would be a lot quieter. I could get more studying done and I didn't have a car so I could truly walk right next door to school and AU's a graduate housing was in like a different part of DC. Um, and uh, so geographically you all were quite desirable for me. <laughs> you were so delightful. Of course you would want to come live with us. Well, yes, I was also hoping to, to uh, find some kindred spirits um, and some interesting conversations at, uh, my life was all history all the time. So I was kind of excited to listen to you guys talk about something else. Although sometimes I had no idea what you're talking about, which was kind of very nice. I could just zone out and be like something Greek, something Aramaic, something Hebrew. I don't know what they just said. (laughs) Um, But that was lovely too. Um, And so, yeah, so we became friends. Um, And then I stayed at AU and kept on plugging on. And you went off on, on your other adventures. That's right but we always stayed in touch. And I'm grateful. I am too. Um, I just keep thinking of that time we went out for ice cream and the car got booted. (laughs) It was Easter day. Was it my idea to go for ice cream? Uh, I feel sure. And my sister was with us too. She had come for her spring break. And so we went to get ice cream and the sign clearly said, do not park here. But we thought, oh, it's Easter Sunday. They don't really mean it. But they did. 
we didn't even linger too. We like ran in to get our ice cream and we came out and there was the boot. It was the most expensive ice cream ever because we all had to chip in to get the boot, you know, dealt with. Uh, (laughs) Such a memorable Easter. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Yes. I'm sure there were other things from grad school that really stick out too. So, so, um, so you had the pivot, you had that time period where you were working on your PhD and you had to make the decision, do I stay with this program or do I go? And what was going on for you? What, what brought you to that moment of decision? Or were you even thinking there was a decision that was going to have to be made? Did it surprise you? Um, I knew it in my heart before my head was willing to give up on the program. Um, so I, I got married right after seminary to another Methodist preacher. And so we, we came home to Georgia and, um, most of your listeners probably know nothing about the geography of little towns in South Georgia, but we were sent to a little town. And so I had to drive back and forth to Atlanta for, for the program. Of course, this was the days before very much happened virtually. And so, um, so I think I always had that sense of here's my life in grad school and here's my completely other separate life as a preacher's wife. Um, and there was always a pull between them, like the two lives didn't quite go together. And then we got moved to another little town in South Georgia and, that's when I discovered that we were going to have a baby and I was thrilled beyond measure about the baby. Um, And I was also teaching at the little Methodist college teaching Bible. And so, um, so I loved the teaching and I loved the new motherhood. And so the part of writing an academic paper became less and less interesting to me. When you're there and you're trying to be a new mom and you're trying to write the paper, did you have mentors to reach out to? Did you have anybody nearby who could be that sort of intellectual partner that that kind of writing needs at times? Well, of course, that was part of my problem, too, Uh, the professor that I had really gone to Emory to study with went on sabbatical. And so I got farmed out to a new professor at Emory. I mean, he wasn't a new professor, but he was new to Emory. And so um, I had never had him for a class, never, never had any relationship with him. And so, um, so it was not a good mentor relationship. And I'm going to go for the gender disparity here. Do you feel like he understood what it was like to be a mom and doing the program? Or do you think as a male professor, he maybe had had a completely different experience of juggling parenthood when or if it had happened to him? Oh, right. I'm sure he had no idea of what I was going through. Did they have any um, resources for you to reach out to female professors or a 
center on campus or somebody who who could have helped fill this gap? They did start a program for um, for people who had been in the program for longer than they would hope. And so there were several of us that were in a group. I'm trying to remember how we connected with one another because that would, of course, have been before the time of FaceTime and Zoom and all of that. I guess we were just in a group chat of some kind. Um, so, so that helped me. I, I did actually complete a 175-page project. And so I have actually a second master's degree from that program. It is not particularly useful for anything in my life, but I, I did walk away with a second master's degree. So were you part of that decision that it was going to be a second master's? Was there, did you feel there was a conversation where you could say, hey, I want to pause this or I want to, what options were presented at that point? Um, I didn't have a lot of input in that. It, it was basically presented as you can either just finish the program and I mean, just, just walk away and be finished or you can complete this paper and have a, a master's degree to show for it. And so walk away and be finished means no masters. You just... right, right. Right. Just be done with the program. And I was at the, um, the dissertation writing stage, you know, I, um, I stayed on track all through coursework and exams but then it was the writing stage where I was so geographically far from from any support group and was and my attention was turning to teaching and to motherhood. It sounds like you were in a place that was so happy and so sad at the same time. That's right. Um, I spent a lot of years kicking myself for not completing my PhD. Um, But then in so many ways, I feel like this is what I was always supposed to be doing. Um, I went into a PhD in Old Testament because I love studying the Bible. And I, I find it so nourishing and so life-giving and that's what I want to teach out of that's what I want to communicate to people and the academic life while it has some room for that doesn't have as much room for for just a sheer love of the scripture and talking to people about it so so I feel like I've landed where I was always supposed to be and I didn't recognize it as quickly as I should have. I think when we're walking a path, it's kind of hard to see what's up ahead sometimes though. Right. So I, I also had a big pivot in grad school, which Rebecca knows, and I'll share a little with the listeners. Um, I had two actually, um, when I was in my master's program at Sarah Lawrence, um, Partway through the first year, it was about springtime, my advisor called me in and she said, I think you should just transfer straight into a PhD program. 
And I was like, well, this is a two and a half year master's. I love it here. I love the students. I love what I'm researching. I have three jobs to put myself through school. It was a lot to put three jobs together and not have their schedules overlap. Um, you know, I've got that finally got it all in place. It's working. And, and she said, you know, you're ready and, and you have enough credits really to, to go into a PhD program with a master's equivalency. But I'd had no thought of uh, applying to a master's program because I had, you know, over a year and a half left at this program. And so I was just really trying to figure out, well, where would that be? Where do you even apply into May? Who's taking applications? Where do you go? Um, And um, her suggestion and uh, matched with the suggestion when I reached out to my undergrad and said, this is surprising. I'm apparently looking for a PhD program like now, like right now (laughs) to start in August. Thoughts, ideas? And um, they, they both suggested American University. They both had um, personal experience with why they thought it was the right place to go. Um, and I applied and uh, it was really, yeah, I think life is a lot of um, luck. I think we don't say that enough. You can be prepared. You can be working hard. You can be trying your best um, and things are going to get thrown at you. And how they turn out has some certain intangibles that right. I just don't think we control at all. Right. And I think that acknowledging that um, is is fair. Um, so how exactly that timing came together was very, very surprising. They had just hired um, Dr. Bernice Johnson-Regan. And um, my undergraduate work had been in African-American history. And my work was in um, reclaiming marginalized voices. And we were, um, in some ways, a a really good match. Um, And so they uh, accepted me, even though they weren't really on rolling admissions. And I came in to uh, work with her. I was, um, she was my advisor and I I came in there. And that's how I ended up in DC, very suddenly. Um, And I didn't even have, I mean, I didn't have a car. I remember renting the smallest size U-Haul they had so I could throw all my books in the back. And the U-Haul was mostly books. And then I had um, like a footlocker uh, with like my clothes and personal belongings, like all, not very many clothes and household items, <laughs> bedding, and then just all of these books. And I remember uh, my friends in New York saying, you know, you can just you can just uh, send all your books book rate and you can just take the train to D.C. And I was like, no, I think I want to drive. I think I want to see what this is. And I had never, oh, I should probably tell listeners, I had never been to D.C. in my life. (laughs) Um, When I chose Sarah Lawrence, I went out um, to see it and do interviews and all that stuff. When I chose D.C., I, you know, sent off my application um, and uh, got accepted. And, you know, like a week before I was supposed to go, threw all my stuff in a U-Haul and drove. And I was like, huh. This is Washington, D.C. Well, this is interesting. Um, and I, you know, I'd never been there before. And um, one of the jobs, I had these three jobs. One of them was a, I was a nanny. I didn't live in, but I lived in the same building as the people. And her mother had a place in Bethesda. And her mother had gone to the Poconos. And she said, you can house sit for a month while you figure out where you're going to live. So um, you know, that's where I was before I scotched over to the seminary and met you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, so that was the first pivot and it was very, um, surprising. Um, and, uh, happy and sad. One of those happy and sad moments. I really liked Sarah Lawrence. I liked my friends. I liked what I'd put together as a life. Um, and it was very surprising that it was time to go. Uh, and then, um, at DC, uh, in DC, um, I was very unexpectedly, uh, in a car accident. I was a passenger and I don't remember the accident. And, um, I don't remember much for about a year after the accident, um, just because recovery can really take all of your focus. And, uh, so I had to make the decision, well, do I go back to, to school? I was ABD. Do I go back or, um, do I not? And what's interesting is I don't remember that being a decision. I remember just being this, um, just how soon can I go back? <laughs> how, how soon do I feel strong enough and ready to go back? Um, and um, so I had those two pivots, both of which really blindsided me, um, but both of which sent me further along my path of uh, finishing my degree. Um, but I know that finishing the degree is, doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Right. So where are you now in that? Do you, do you have an idea like maybe someday because you're ABD, you would, you would see if you could apply to, to, to do the dissertation and, and become doctrine, doctor, reverend, do you get to do, which order does it go in? The, the doctor, reverend, the reverend doctor. The reverend doctor. That's right. Yes. The reverend doctor, <laughs> Rebecca D. Barton. Um, or is it, is it really just um, just that was a piece of the story that got you to where you are now? And there's no um, there's no feeling that 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 dissertation wants to be finished. Uh, well, so that's sort of two separate questions. Um, OK, so so I'll take the second one first. If I were going to do the work that I did again, I would want to do it in a way that's more meaningful for your average person than a dissertation. My, my dissertation was the social construction of motherhood in the Hebrew Bible. Ooh, I like and, that. And it, it was so interesting to me that the thought of what it was like to be a mother and the experience of these women who, who lived through quite a different time. And, and I was working on that at the point that, I had given birth and I was breastfeeding and I was trying to figure out how to make life work while I was also caring for an infant. And so there's a certain amount of connection over time that even though I would be writing about women who had lived thousands of years before me, there's that connection of motherhood. But I think if I were going to pick that back up, I would be so much more interested to write it in a way that would speak to actual mothers in our time rather than the academic work of it. So, um, so I feel like I haven't entirely left that thought behind. I, I've done some, um, some just work within my own churches of teaching about women's lives in the Bible and that sort of thing. Um, in the Methodist church, we have a group called United Methodist Women. And even when I was a stay-at-home mom with my kids. Um, I did a lot of 
substitute preaching and Bible studies for United Methodist Women's programs. So I actually have gotten to use some of that work. The other piece about whether to go back and ever get a degree, um, there is, of course, encouragement from the, um, the structure of the Methodist church that the a doctorate means something to to certain people in the in the church. Um, most people who are pastors get a master. Uh, I mean, a, a, a doctorate of ministry, a demon, and so um, that's quite a different degree than the academic uh, PhD. Um, but I, I really don't have a huge desire to go back and work on it again. Um, I had a great group of professors and I had a great group of colleagues at, at Emory. We, we were a small group. There were only three people in my year in old Testament in Hebrew Bible. Um, so we, we had a great supportive group, but it felt like that was for a certain time in my life. And I'm not sure that that's where I am anymore. I'm not sure that I would be interested in the academic piece of it. Um, so if, if you pick back up the book uh, and you write it, it would go for um, a secular, a non-academic press. Yes. Right. Not necessarily secular, but, um, but not a university press. <laughs> right. I just envision a thought of women who are also going through some of the same struggles and thinking, oh my goodness, how did, did women in ancient Israel manage all of these responsibilities? Um, I, I would want to find a word of encouragement for today's mothers in that. So that piece of it still interests me, whereas the academic part doesn't as much. I think that would be really interesting for you too, as the leader of a church, because when, when mothers are at the phase of, of parenting where they have very small children, church can be highly stressful. Even when other parishioners say, Oh, it's okay. It's okay if they squirm. It's okay if they cry. It's okay if they crawl around the floor. It's it's hard on the moms, right? Um, and and church becomes something very different during that um, phase of parenting. Um, it can be more stress um, and less of the connection um, because your your attention is so diverted to the children and and the concern of what the children need and and how the children's normal childhood expressions of need are affecting other people. Um, and so if they had a book like that, um, it seems like church would speak to them in a, in a, in a new way, right where they are. Like women have been doing this for thousands of years. And right. they've been doing it for thousands more. Not all women, but, but women. Well, and the other piece for me is that so much of the conversation about, um, quote, biblical motherhood or biblical womanhood really has this sort of 
1950s sitcom idea of what women's lives were like in ancient Israel, you know, as though women stayed at home and men off went off to work and got a paycheck. That's not how it was for people living on a farm in Israel, just trying to make it. Everyone chipped in and did what needed to be done. And I think that would be a really helpful understanding for for mothers today um, who are interested in what motherhood in the Bible was like, but it, it's so often not, it, it wasn't like what is so often described in Christian culture these days. So what would be the, the biggest myth you would want to explode? I, I think the, the idea that there were such set gender-related jobs that people did. Um, That may have been true in the king's court, but for everybody else who was just trying to survive day to day, you you chipped in and did what had to be done. Um, If it was time for the crop to come in, that was every able-bodied person to go do it. Um, you know, um, we see records of women who who would stay back with the children if if things were happening. Military um, military expeditions and that kind of thing. But for the most part, day to day life was everybody does what needs to be done to survive. So the gender roles were not just so strict as sometimes you would think from current conversation. I love that you want to explode that myth. My, uh, my research in grad school uh, was all about 19th century New England farm women. And my findings were, were very similar. Everybody worked outside. Everybody did what had to be done. If the crop was ready, everybody uh, went out. And uh, it's surprising to me that that isn't known by all. It just um, seems such a reasonable understanding of how uh, life is when you live on and with the land. Right. Um, And when you um, live season to season, um, crop to crop. Um, and when you're, especially when you're in the family building years, all of those things require people to be sensible about what has to be done right now for the survival of all, uh, and the survival of all the goals. And it just seems to me completely illogical that we think that the guy would sit there and say, you know, wow, the, the baby really needs to be moved a few feet from danger, but it's not my job. I'm right. the guy. Right. Or, wow, we really need to get the crops in right now. But of course, you should stay inside because you're female. We'll, we'll lose the food, but we'll keep your gender role. Right. We'll lose the baby, but we'll keep your gender role. Um, and I hope listeners know that I'm being absurd on purpose. Uh, I value babies um, and life. Um, but but it's really to illustrate your point and, and, and what scholars who look at um, gender and, and women's roles specifically, um, it's sort of this uphill battle that we're still fighting 
And I love that you call it the 1950s stereotype because it's still flabbergasting to me and neither of us lived through the 1950s. Um, okay. So it's we're sort of guessing what the 1950s stereotype is, but it seems to sum it up well enough. Right. And then, of course, the fact that for the Bible, for the most part, these are texts that the elite class wrote and kept and and was able to keep up in terms of of following um, all of the prescriptions of the law and, and that sort of thing. Um, for your average mother, it, it was just let's get by as best we can. God has provided for today. So what has surprised you the most since leaving academia? Because clearly your passions have not dimmed your uh, enthusiasm for what your dissertation topic was has not abated at all. It's it's shifted in um, the format that you'd like to present it to. You've identified a new audience that you um, want to bring it to. Um, but what has surprised you the most? Is it that you were able to continue with your passions? I think it's been surprising that I, most of the churches that I've served have still afforded me the respect as though I had completed a PhD, even though I did not. I mean, of course, not calling me Dr. Duke Barton, but, but the sense that I have studied and that I've really done a deep dive into the history and literature that I'm talking about. Um, and so, so I've been afforded a certain amount of respect just for having completed part of the program. And that surprised you because of how you were feeling about yourself when you left the program or because you had been led to believe that the larger world required certain uh, credentials in order to take you seriously. Right. I think that both of those pieces are true. Um, You know, I really did. I felt like a failure for a long time that I had started this journey and that I didn't complete it. And, um, and to feel like I I must not have done what God intended me to do. You know, I, I um, got into this program at Emory that was hard to get into. And, um, and I had squandered that opportunity. And, and I guess I thought, well, everyone will think that I've squandered it. You know, I've, I've disappointed so many people. Uh, and it took me a while to come back around to the sense that all of that study of the Bible and all of that love and passion that I have for it actually makes a, probably a bigger difference in the local church than it did in trying to be maybe somebody that I really wasn't in academics. I I know you're saying God's calling and I respect uh, your um, beliefs and I respect your um, inner wisdom. I also hear a bit of um, academia telling you that, you know, when you're saying you thought God's calling was to finish this degree, to, to use this, Um, opportunity in a specific way. And that specific way was to carry it through to the completion of the PhD. 
that voice of God sounds strikingly similar to the voice of academia. Right. I, I think you're right. I, um, I internalized a lot of what I was taught along the way about what important life goals would be like. And uh, I remember a conversation that I had with you, Christina. Um, You were already in the PhD program when I was getting a master's degree and then applying for PhD programs. And I remember you trying to um, not talk me out of it, but to warn me that it wasn't going to be like my experience in seminary had been where the study of the Bible was so life-giving for me. And, um, and you kind of warned me that you don't understand how much that it, that the academic life is really going to weigh heavy on you. And those expectations are going to be so strong. Um, you're not just going to love every minute of it. If only I had listened to your wisdom. I'm glad you didn't. That sounds very gloomy and doomy. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't think you meant it that way. I think it was um, just a real warning about what the academic life could be like for me personally, who's so generally sunshiny and so positive about the world and thinks everything is just going to go my way. And I think you were trying to help me see that there could be some moments along the way where everything wouldn't just go my way. Um, You know, I, I think for so many of us, I assume a lot of your listeners will be people who were also the class valedictorian and got a scholarship to college and all of that. And everything just seems to fall into place in academics. And then you get to a PhD program where everyone has had that experience and you're surrounded by lots of brilliant elite scholars and, um, and suddenly it, it made me reevaluate just how smart I thought I was. (laughs) Um, you know, that, that there really were people who could study, uh, we had to take the language of Akkadian, which is the language that the Assyrians and the Babylonians spoke. And that was one of the first times that I had studied something that was really, I, I felt like this may be beyond my capabilities. And that had been a rare experience for me. I was not valedictorian. I just want to say that for listeners. I was not. Um, I saw people in in my high school programs, and I was at a very, very large high school, and um, had a very it had a very strong uh, honors track. It had a very strong uh, AP track. Um, it was awarded one of the top public schools in the state, which I would walk around saying, then what are the other schools like? Um, (laughs) Because I had serious worries about my school. Um, And I think that was a good question to ask. I'm glad that I was asking that. And it's something that I've sought to learn about. Um, And um, so I made a decision that I wanted to graduate in the top 10%. 
because I, I intimate, not intimately, they can, that can mean so many things, uh, well knew the, the, the people who were vying for the valedictorian spot, valedictorian salutatorian. They were in all my classes, literally sitting next to them. They really wanted to see what grades I was getting on my papers. And they thought I was the competition. And I remember freshman year, that's, it was so Gilmore girls, um, <laughs> freshman year, just kind of saying to these two, and they're both female, I'm not your competition. I don't want to be valedictorian. I don't want to be salutatorian. And they didn't believe me. And I said, honest to God, you both look miserable. I don't want what you're having. (laughs) I'm not doing that. I want to be in the top 10%. And they were like, that's the same as wanting to be average. I said, great. If you both will just leave me alone (laughs) and let me be average in the honors program, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I can't say that that high school was a super fun time, uh, I, but I think that took a lot of pressure off me. Um, and uh, and I I look back on on that fourteen year old girl and I think, good job. <laughs> <laughs> you decided not to get an ulcer. Um, good job. Um, yeah, and that that feeling in grad school uh, where people are talking about things that are. Um, so over your head or literally in another language. I mean, I had that every day at lunch with you all. And I loved it. I thought it really kept me grounded. Like there are people who know all the things and I'm not one of them. (laughs) Um, There are people who can truly speak in dead languages um, and and languages that we're all using right now. And, you know, I'm just sitting in the sweet spot of, you know, my my mother tongue of English. Um, And, you know, I have... It was it was kind of um, it was kind of relieving in a way, but yes, I take your point of having those moments where you feel um, stripped bare of what you thought about yourself intellectually. And I had one of those um, actually at my master's program. Um, I was loved it as I've said, and uh, I jumped in with both feet. I started working on my master's thesis like truly immediately. Um, and so we had this like, um, they had this like traditional tea and they brought in the new students and they brought in, you know, big names in women's history and they brought in faculty and it was this glorious, lovely tea party. And I remember two things about it. I remember, um, my, my fellow, uh, students, cause it was like your, uh, PhD program in a way we were a super small cohort total for the two and a half year program. They'd have, I think eight students between the, the new class and, and the, the class that was finishing up. So there we were. And um, I remember them all like wrapping extra uh, sandwiches and strawberries and stuff and napkins and like sticking them in my tote bag. Cause they all knew by then that I was the one working three jobs and putting myself through school. So they were all like <laughs> giving me the leftovers while the tea party's going on. So I remember that. Um, and then I also remember they had this thing where we all sort of, um, we're meant to share what our master's thesis was going to be. And there was this woman who was big name in women's history and I'm not calling her out. So I'm not going to name her because I, I respect where she, where she's coming from and, and her career and what she built. Um, but so people went around the circle and it was the students who were further ahead, you know, the people who were in their second or finishing up a little bit of basically what's a third year um, saying, you know, their, their master's thesis and where they were with it. And, and I was like second to last. And so uh, it was my turn. And I said, well, um, you know, I've already gotten started and I'm 
researching at Rutgers and Yale and their archives um, on the weekends. And I'm really excited about it. I'm looking at um, the diaries left by 19th century New England farm women uh, with the goal of, of writing about their lives. There's, there's no book on this. And she looked at me and she said, no. And, and I, so I tried again, you know, well, I've, I've already started. It turns out there's just, there's so many fascinating archival sources. Um, and she said, no, those pioneer women have been done to death. Oh dear. Yeah. And I said, but, but I'm not, I'm not doing the pioneer women. I'm doing new England farm women who haven't been looked at. And she truly, her attention had gone to the person next to me who, who was now speaking. And you know, it was the the moment where um, my scholarship was called into question, my ability to identify what does and doesn't matter in the scheme of my chosen field. I mean, all of it. I mean, you're talking to your idol and she, she just misses you and what you're passionate about. And here we are, you know, all these years later, I stayed with it as my master's. I stayed with it as my dissertation. Um, and I and I still... Um, if someone stands next to me for too long, we'll find a reason to turn it into a conversation and tell them about it. <laughs> Even now, I, I really am super passionate about uh, the 19th century New England farm women and who they really were and what they really did and, and the the diaries that they wrote, especially. Um, but yeah, that was for me a, a moment of feeling sort of like what you said, where you realize all of the really, really, really smart people are here. And are you one of them? Right. And in that moment, it was crushing. I did leave with my purse full of sandwiches from my friends who were worried about how skinny I was getting um, and how hard I was working to stay there financially. Um, but it it was, I think, similar to where you are with your project now. When something just really sits with you personally and the more you sit with it and the more you look at it, it really is the, the topic that, that you care about. You really care about telling people what it really was like um, mothering in Old Testament times, uh, something that people just don't know unless you, you take the initiative and, and write the book. Right. Um, and you're willing to do that, whether academia wants you back to say, it's not academic enough. <laughs> can you can you dissertation it up more? And you, no, <laughs> uh, I'm going to write it. I'm going to write it for the people that I think it's going to. Um, and for me, with with the farm women, um, you know, I've continued to win some some fellowships and opportunities even now to continue to to keep looking at it, and it never gets old. And um, I can find enough people who'll stand next to me long enough to listen. So I can I can tell them. So yeah, I think that would be my word of inspiration for the listeners. The the passion in you um, maybe isn't going to be validated by the people that you're talking to at the moment. But that's not the reason to think it doesn't matter. And this is such a time when there's an explosion of opportunities to do things differently. Um, that the things that we're passionate about that we might've only been able to speak to just a few people about suddenly we have opportunities through social media and podcasts and all, all kinds of other ways that might not be the traditional teach in a classroom opportunity of academics, but that we have a way to get our passions out to people. And we have a way to use our intellect to do it, whether we're sitting in, you know, our graduate program or we've graduated or we've made a pivot in a totally different direction. Our 
the intellectual gifts in us um, don't really have to be validated by a degree. Right. They can be, if that's what you know you need. Um, you know, in some of the sciences, for example, those degrees are really um, can be really crucial for um, possibilities down the line with with career. Um, Rebecca, it's been amazing to talk to you. In the few minutes we have left, do you want to tell us about what you're working on now? Um, well, in the thoughts of how to make things in new ways, um, I have really thought about uh, creating a website that um, that enables some of my Bible studies in in short pieces to come through. Um, I did a study on the word restore in the Old Testament uh, that started last year. And I feel like that's a word that we need in our world at this moment, that that God wants to restore us. Um, and so, so I, I preached it at my church, but I want to find a way to get that out to more people. So I've been toying with a website that would enable um, people to stop in and read some of those small Bible studies. That sounds very cool. And then I'm also, you know, PTO president at my kids' school and um, and all those sort of cross-country cheerleader mom, that sort of thing. So uh, that keeps me busy. And sermons. And sermons. I have a, a paper to write every single week that I then read out to a group. And of course, in this um, COVID time, trying to figure out how to keep people connected, because I feel like that's so much of what we've lost is that sense of connectedness. Sounds really important. I'm glad you're doing all of those things. And I'm so glad we were able to have this connectedness here and have this time with each other and with our listeners. You've been listening to the Academic Life podcast series here on New Books Network. My guest today was Reverend Rebecca Duke-Barton. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler. Please join us again.